and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. I'm Sarah. And uh, how are you doing this week, Sarah? Doing alright. It's been a busy week. I have insomnia, so I have not slept in 29 hours. That's not good. It'll probably make for an interesting episode, though. I'm sure I'll have some unique insights into the coming film. I mean, I don't think a horror movie is the best thing to watch if you can't sleep already. Horror movies are supposed to keep you up at night. Right. I'm just hoping that horror movies that are 103 years old (laughs) don't quite have the same kind of staying power. (laughs) In fact, possibly the opposite. Right. So you can sleep. I'm I'm really hoping I don't fall asleep during the movie, is really what I'm hoping now. <laughs> what, uh, what movie are we watching this week? Oh, we have a treat this week. Um, we are watching The Avenging Conscience from 1914. And the reason this is a treat, for certain definitions of the word treat, <laughs> is it's directed by D.W. Griffith. Uh, what do you know about D.W. Griffith, Sarah? Well, we watched some of his shorts in for episode one. Yes, he did, um... The Sealed Room. Yes. I think that was the only one he did, actually. Yeah, of those shorts, yes. And I know, obviously, The Birth of Na- the Nation, uh, stuff he's famous for, um, and how much he loves melodrama. Yes. Well, that's good. So you pretty much know what you need to know, then. Um, <laughs> Birth of a Nation was a year after this film. Okay. So we're kind of right before that. The thing about D.W. Griffith is he's generally considered to be the father of the language of cinema. So a lot of the movies we watched so far have been very stage-like in their framing and their presentation of scenes, and Griffith was kind of the guy who figured out close-up and medium shot and cross-cutting between parallel narratives and shot-reverse shot and all this kind of stuff that we kind of take for granted now. Yeah. Rising action, suspense. He Didn't he invent that um, narrative style of, meanwhile, that... Yeah, that was sort of his, in, the way he invented suspense. So the idea was you had one situation that's rising to its climax, and right before you get any kind of payoff, you cut to something else. So there's famous examples of that in Birth of the Nation, which I actually won't go into specifics of, because they're all pretty bad. Birth of the Nation is sort of the film that every film history professor has had to wrestle with the idea of, do I show this? Because it's significant, but it's super racist. It's basically, uh, what if the KKK were, like, the superheroes of a movie, and they were great and awesome? Which is not a viewpoint that I, or I think you, uh, agree with at all. Exactly. The thing, uh, about Griffith is he was from Kentucky, originally, And he started out, he wanted to be a playwright, but uh, nobody liked his plays, (laughs) so he became an actor. Uh, That sort of led him into the film industry, and he started acting for an early film studio called Biograph, and their director got sick one day, 
and that led to D.W. Griffith getting to direct a movie, because this is the early days of filmmaking in America, and this sort of shenanigan was possible. He ended up becoming their regular director. Uh, from 1908 to 1914, he produced hundreds of short films per year for Biograph. Uh, of the, like, one-reeler or two-reeler types that we saw in episode one, from 1908 to 1914, as he made all of these films at this prodigious rate, he began experimenting. His films got longer, one-reel to two-reel to four. He started introducing these new techniques, close-ups, cross-cutting, parallel narratives, flashbacks, dream sequences. And by 1913, he wanted a new challenge. He wanted to produce a feature-length film, a film called Judith of Bethulia, uh, which is the Judith and Holofernes story from the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. And uh, that film ran 61 minutes long. Biograph was firmly opposed to its production. Uh, the exact quote is they felt that a film that long would hurt people's eyes. Um, <laughs> they know people blink, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's sort of like do cell phones cause brain cancer? Film was an early technology and no <laughs> one knew what potential harm it might have. Uh, so they were very opposed to this movie being made. Griffith made it anyways. And in a very typical kind of movie move of the time, the use of an Old Testament biblical narrative was done so that they could put in a lot of sex and violence, but have it not be objectionable by the censors of the day. How does that work? Well, because you can say, oh, well, no, we need to have the scene where she cuts his head off, because that's in the Bible. It's If it's good enough for Sunday school, <laughs> it's good enough for the movie. All right. That's the argument. It's how you still get movies like Passion of the Christ to this day. <laughs> uh, the movie ended up costing $36,000, which was, like, an absurd amount in 1913. Well, what is that in 2017 dollars? Oh, I, I don't know, Sarah. Uh, let me... Look it up on my phone, and you can edit this section later. So that would be about $886,000 in today's money. Okay. So, I mean, still not nearly what, like, a feature film costs today. Uh, but it was still considered an absurd amount at the time. The movie came out and got huge critical acclaim, but Biograph was still not happy so they refused to let Griffith make any more features, and they also withheld his pay for Judith of Bethulia. Uh, so Griffith quit and went to Mutual Films, which was the studio that was producing Charlie Chaplin's films at the time. Yeah. And he also took his entire acting company and film crew with oh him. Oh my god. So leaving Biograph without anyone to work for them. Like if he's making... Hundreds of films a year. Right, he was their primary director. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, so he just screwed over this whole movie studio. <laughs> um, so Avenging Conscience was his next film. Okay. So this is his second feature film and his first film at Mutual after building his career at Biograph. When I was doing a little bit of research, I saw that it also has a second name, Thou Shalt Not Kill. That's kind of common in American films of this time to have like a subtitle like that. It's also pretty telling about the American audience's attitude toward horror or genre films. 
that around this time. Be, there needs to be a morality tale? Yeah, so it hadn't happened yet, but a year after <laughs> this, in 1915, the Supreme Court ruled that film was a business, not an art form, and therefore not protected by First Amendment uh, rights. Um, already by this point, there was huge moral outcry over the cinema. I mean, like there is when there's any new medium, it was being blamed for all and any social ills. Mm -hmm. And because it was being under attack, especially, you know, any movie that was exciting, uh, genre films, westerns, anything with a lot of action, horror films, which were not even really like a true genre yet, as we've kind of seen... You know, these kind of things were under attack from the get-go. So the kind of classic way to get around that was to either do like a biblical adaptation, like he had done with his first film, Judith of Bethulia, or to have it be a literary adaptation of some type. Um, because if you could say that you were taking inspiration from a literary classic, it sort of bought you a cloak of respectability to kind of keep the critics at bay. Okay. I suppose that would explain why so many, including this film, are, quote-unquote, based on Edgar Allan Poe writings. Yeah, so, I mean, Student of Prague was, quote-unquote, based on Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And, uh, the... Sealed Room. Sealed Room. And so is this one. Mm-hmm. Well, this one is based on, or inspired by, Poe's Telltale Heart, a short story, and Annabelle Lee poem. And I did a little bit of, of research about these, because Telltale Heart, that is a pretty common, commonly known short story. It's pretty famous. Yeah. Um, for listeners who don't know, uh, you can just Google it real quick. It's that classic tale of guy kills guy and hides his body underneath the floorboards, but he can still hear the heart pounding because it's his conscience, basically. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> what are you, what are you saying? <laughs> Um, with a title like The Avenging Conscience, I think it's pretty easy to see that link to Poe. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty clear right off the bat. Yeah. So what's Annabelle Lee about? You know, I'm not very familiar with Poe's poems, but this was actually his last complete poem. Hmm. It was published posthumously, but he had written it like a few months before he actually died. It is about these childhood lovers who are just, like, so in love, the angels are jealous. So the angels kill the girl, <laughs> and the guy still loves her. Their love overcomes death, and he sleeps by her grave every night. Okay, so <laughs> if this is a mix of that and Telltale Heart, what's your prediction for what the plot of this movie is? <laughs> Um, like, are the angels the ones who have the guilty conscience after killing this gal? Like, that feels a little extreme for 1914 America. It did make me worry that this is going to be a film showing guy killing girl and, like, still loving her past that and being feeling guilty about killing her. Mm. Um, which I'm not going to be a fan of, but that's what that is. But, I mean... The Sealed Room's method of murder is based off Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, but nothing else is. Right. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, like, take inspired by <laughs> Poe's whatever as with a grain of salt. I mean, Student of Prague was the same thing. It was the ending of William Wilson and nothing else. 
So yeah, I guess I guess we'll we'll have to see. I know that for a very long time, the standard kind of mo of American quote unquote horror films was they had such a reluctance to have the macabre in the way that their European counterparts really embraced that like everything was kind of half measures. So, I mean, we'll get there eventually, but there's a lot of quote unquote horror movies from the twenties in the States that are basically just Scooby-Doo episodes where like (laughs) you take the mask off and nothing was real kind of thing. So this is the first American horror feature film though. There's really nothing before it other than the shorts that we've seen in the American canon. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how far Griffith is willing to step his toes into the water, you know, and it's only his second feature film, and then the year after this he goes and does Birth of a Nation, and it's like, oh, wow, this amazing guy. So mm-hmm. sort of an early stage of this guy, although he would have been fairly famous already, really, by this point. Yeah. I was also curious as to why it's always been Edgar Allan Poe. That people are adapting. Sure. Um, I mean, I suppose we have Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Robert Louis Stevenson. But Edgar Allan Poe's name just keeps popping up. Um, And I couldn't really figure out why him in particular, besides the fact that he was writing for a, a ton of periodicals during the time when he was writing, in like the 1830s, um, and with being an editor of these periodicals, he would write reviews, and so his name would always be out there. There'd be a lot of conversation with other writers at the time period, especially with him writing reviews and critiquing work. So that's the only thing I can think of, like, why his name just keeps popping up. When did Poe die? Poe died in 1849. Okay, so the other thing to consider is that he's had essentially 60 years to become a name. Robert Louis Stevenson writing Jekyll and Hyde, that's a book of the, I want to say 1880s, 1890s thereabouts. Stoker's Dracula's 1890, we haven't seen any Dracula yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the other kind of literary horror works are fairly new, uh, so they don't quite have that air of respectability that adapting them grants your film. Poe's been dead long enough, and he's an American, and he has a large body of work that it's had time to build up its critical respectability enough that he's a useful ploy for these films to use in terms of dressing themselves up. When did H.P. Lovecraft write? Uh, the 20s and 30s. Like, he's not even a thing at this point. Okay. He's 24 at this point and just living with his mom in Rhode Island. <laughs> okay. Just curious. Yeah. In my head, he's always in the same time frame as Poe. Poe was one of his biggest influences, but, you know, the thing about Lovecraft is that he was writing in the 20s and 30s with the vocabulary of someone who lived in the 1840s because he was a giant nerd. (laughs) Um, So that's maybe why you're kind of conflating those things. Okay. Cool. Is there anything we want to talk about the Aveng- with The Avenging Conscience before we watch the movie? I guess I'll just mention that, like uh, all the other films we've done so far, this is a movie made before 1923, so it is in the public domain, which means you can watch it for free on YouTube. That being said, uh, a point I do want to raise is that films of this vintage, 
it can be very difficult to find prints that are any good, that have appropriate music, that um, are in good shape. And there's a few DVD kind of home video companies that make it their business to restore and put out these movies in a you know good accessible state. Uh, in North America, there's Kino Video and Image Entertainment. In Europe, it's Eureka and Masters of Cinema. And there isn't really a streaming market for silent films. There isn't, you know, a Netflix or a Hulu <laughs> that's devoted to films of this vintage. And it costs a lot of money to restore films this old, too, uh, especially when the audience is so small. So if you are thinking of enjoying these movies, even though you can watch them for free because anyone can just kind of upload them onto YouTube, uh, if you really do enjoy films of this vintage, it's worth doing the research to find out what companies have done the work to really restore them well so that you're not watching a kind of bad hand-me-down print <laughs> and actually, you know, buying a copy from them. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to do with physical DVD stores disappearing quicker and quicker. In Canada, we've, we're seeing less and less options in that regard every day, but certainly uh, if you can order it from them online. It's a good way to go because without any kind of monetary support, uh, there, you know, no one's going to put the work into uh, maintaining and restoring these films. And that just means that the, you know, cultural history uh, that these films represent is just kind of lost forever. So you can definitely see The Avenging Conscience on YouTube, but if you're going to get it on DVD, uh, the best one to get is Kino International did a Griffith box set a few years back that this is part of, um, and it's a pretty good restoration. Great! So, uh, you guys are gonna hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back. See you then, guys! to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Avenging Conscience from 1914 by D.W. Griffith. Ben, first thoughts. This is not a horror movie. You sure? Pretty sure. Why is that? Uh, well, okay, so this is a morality play with faux supernatural elements in it, all of which are explained away eventually. There are some freaky, scary moments, but, you know, there's some really funny jokes in, like, Reservoir Dogs, but Reservoir Dogs is not a comedy. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> Very sure. Not like a black comedy? N no. Okay. So, I mean, you, I guess you could argue that, but it's not. Okay. So, you know, this movie has some scary moments but they're sort of few and far between, and they're surrounded by the rest of the movie, which is mostly filled up with romantic melodrama, uh, gunfight, shootouts, uh, dozens of redundant and extraneous characters, frequent tangents into pointless subplots, uh, religious imagery, Pan. <laughs> Playing his flute. 
I had been afraid that I was going to fall asleep during this movie, and there were definitely some points where I was, like, having to keep myself awake. This movie could have easily been 20 minutes shorter. I I find myself bizarrely on the side of the, the movie studios with this one. I mean, this movie's only, like, 70 minutes long, and I'm sitting there being like, DW, this is... you're going overboard. I agree. It could definitely have been shorter, and then there was redundancies. I I feel like because it's a feature film and it's pretty... Feature film seems to be pretty new. Mm. Uh, it felt like, oh, I need to make sure I have a little bit of everything to keep, like, to appease everyone in the audience and to make sure I can pad out time. So that's why we have, like, comedies and, like... Yeah, just, like, a little bit of every genre. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. Like, there's definitely whole characters and subplots that, like, feel like, oh, we'll throw this in for this segment of the audience or whatever. And it's, like, the idea that every element in your film should, like, contribute to the unified message or story of your film as a whole, like, clearly has not, that idea has not been developed yet. Yeah. Because there's so much uh, nonsense, Um, you know, and so many characters who could have been eliminated entirely without losing anything. Mm -hmm. I did find this movie tiresome. I did not find it as tiresome as The Sealed Room, ironically. Um, And that could possibly be... Sealed Room was like a seventh of the length. (laughs) Yeah. But we saw the same few shots over and over and over Mm. again. Perhaps it was the fact that we had these random subplots that kept me chucking along. I was like, oh, cool, is there going to be something that happens with this couple between the the grocer's assistant and the maid? Uh, The answer is no. Yeah, the answer is no. Uh, They only exist to fall in love, uh, for the maid to attempt to dress a little sexy for turn-of-the-century sexy standards, and the uncle to shake his fists. Yeah, that's like 20 minutes you could have gotten rid of yeah. right there. Oh, perhaps we should summarize what happens in the movie. Yeah, let's let's maybe go through the plot. So, uh, the thing to know about D.W. Griffith movies is he very rarely names his characters. They tend to be just labeled by like <laughs> whatever they are because he wanted his audience to think of them as archetypal or allegorical figures. The basic setup of this film is uh, the main character is called The Nephew, uh, and he's this young man who lives with and works for and is supported by his uncle, I guess because his parents are dead and his uncle... Raised him from a baby. Right. And so when the film starts, uh, the nephew's a young man, and the uncle's basically like, you aren't allowed to have any life at all up to and including leaving the house, because you're going to work for me to pay off the debt of me taking care of you up to this point, which is, like, a real a real dick move. Like, the uncle's kind of a real dick. Yeah. Uh, and the nephew's got a crush on the sweetheart, and the uncle basically just won't hear of this at all. It's just, no, women are a distraction <laughs> from work. Don't do that at all. <laughs> He's very anti-romance. The nephew and the sweetheart go on a date to a, like, fancy garden party being held by a bunch of rich people just so that he can 
tell her that he can't see her anymore, which takes forever. Yeah. Uh, like, this is a silent film in which telling someone something takes forever. Well, it's because it's intercut with the maid and the grocer falling in love. Right. Like, there's this grocer boy falling in love with a maid. There's also, like, a an erotic dance sequence from, like, a... Or the performing for the garden party attendees. Right. That's, like, totally gratuitous. <laughs> the uncle's wandering around the garden party, like, noticing that people who are in love are happy and that, therefore, like... Maybe he was wrong about this whole love thing, which is like, and then, uh, what else is in there? There's the stranger who wanders around and bumps into people. Like, it goes on forever. Yeah. Uh, eventually, you know, the uncle has this change of heart after seeing all these people in love. He's like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to tell my nephew that, no, he can date this girl. But before he gets home to tell him that... The nephew gets back home and he's real upset that he had to break up with his girlfriend because his uncle's a dick. And the title card says, like, a plan hatches in a fevered brain or something. He, like, sits down in a chair on a bench in a park <laughs> and observes that spiders eat flies and ants eat wasps and... Uh, all of nature was a... Cycle an of murder. chain of murder. Right. So therefore, the natural way out of his problems will be to murder his uncle. Yes. Yeah. Which happens. Right. Like, happens? so... Happens? Right. So <laughs> he goes home. Oh, here's another protracted, long sequence. So he comes up with, like, an overly convoluted plan to kill his uncle, where he forges a note to get the uncle to leave the house so that everyone in the village will see him... Hike up this hill. Right, to go see somebody and then not come back, but really he does come back, but he prevents everyone in the... Uh, nephew prevents everyone from seeing the uncle come back. And then the uncle comes home, and then the nephew has, like, a gun that he's clearly, like, bought for this occasion that he, like, hesitates about using for, like, 20 minutes, and then eventually he just chokes him to death. Yeah. Like, it's Griffith building up suspense, but it's... Well past the point. Yeah, I think part of that is it didn't age well either. That kind of suspense building didn't age well. Uh, perhaps it's because it's a silent movie. Well, I mean, we sort of talked about this while we were watching it, but there is something to be said for the fact that, like, if Griffith is the first guy in American cinema to be doing suspense building, cross-cutting, parallel narrative structures and stuff, it kind of makes sense that he'd go a little bit overboard with it because he kind of has to hold his audience's hand mm. a bit. Like, yeah. he can't... You know, people don't know how movies work yet. You kind of got to hold their hand. Yeah. Um, this is probably a good time to mention that at some point in this movie, the nephew met the Italian. Oh, yeah. Who he, is, again, just like a, a, the stereotype of an immigrant, basically... Um, and you can check out episode two for The Student of Prague if you want to hear more about our talk about, uh, Italians being othered. Yeah, this is another case of, like, I feel like maybe there's something going on here in the early part of the 20th century with, like, you know, you want to have an immigrant character so that you can shit on foreigners, but you, you're totally right. Like, this Italian's basically just, he's, he's big, he's ugly, He's drunken, he's boorish, he's dirty, he's an idiot, yeah. he's blue-collar. 
it's a little tough to get through. And he's totally, thinking about it, he's totally purposeless to the film. You could have cut his character entirely and not needed him. He's, well, he blackmails Which isn't nephew. necessary. The nephew pays him off. End of subplot. What about later in the film when he, the nephew hires him as a bodyguard against the stranger detective? Which he doesn't help. Like, the nephew's holed up in the building. The detective shows up. They have a shootout. The Italian shows up with his guys and they're like, Oh, I'm not getting involved with this and leaves. I think... You could cut him entirely. I think it's... I think it's with suspense again. So it's kind of like... So heads up to listeners. Uh, last week... Not for a podcast. Ben and I watched the musical version of Oliver uh, from the 60s. And we, you know, got through that long, drawn-out musical. And then we started looking into what Oliver Twist is actually like. The way that it's just an ongoing soap opera with twists and turns and too many characters. And that really characterizes this movie. Right. Like, the no one's following, like, you know, the the... Aristotelian principles of, like, you know, efficiency in <laughs> character and place and action. So, yeah, so the nephew strangles his uncle to death. Mm-hmm. And the whole deal is that the Italian, like, hears it happen and spies it through the window. So after the deed is done, the Italian's like, oh, you gotta give me some money or I'm gonna tell people. So the nephew does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nephew also decides to cask of Montalato his uncle's dead body into the fireplace. Yeah, to seal it up. There's a lot of nonsense, but basically there's a stranger in town who gets contacted by one of the uncle's friends, and the uncle's friend is also a character you could have deleted and (laughs) lost nothing. This uncle's friend tells this stranger in town something's not right. So the stranger goes to investigate. Turns out the stranger's a detective, and we get to... Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, aren't I? Yeah. Um, I don't remember at what point we see the ghost. Uh, the ghost comes out when Sweetheart, who is also known as Annabelle, that that's where the poem ties in. Um, she comes over. Oh, right, because he has money now. Yeah, yeah, and they're reconciling. Um, and the ghost kind of pops out, and it freaked me out at first because you just see these hands pop out of the fireplace, and the way that the double exposure was done, it looked like they were actually hands, but then as the dude started walking out of the chimney, you could tell that it was just double exposure. Um, but that's the first time we see the ghost, and I think that was like, I I didn't like that that was the way that they were doing the, the telltale heart beating thing under the floorboards, but then I realized, wait, this is a silent film. How right. are they going to do a heart beating? So, yeah, so she, Annabelle, is like embracing this guy, the nephew, and he sees the ghost of his uncle over her shoulder. And that's probably the most like effectively chilling moment in the movie. He starts freaking out. And she suspects it might be more than mere mental derangement. Which is a delightful turn of phrase. Yeah, that title card was strange. Yeah, so she... Everyone's like... It's a weird world where everyone just immediately goes, Oh, you're seeing a ghost? Cool. You're crazy. And what the sweetheart's afraid of is he might be more than crazy. Yeah. So. He checks himself into. A sanitarium. And then. Next title card. He's he's back. Yeah. The sanitarium does not get to be a set or a place in this movie. He just leaves and comes back instantaneously and still gets haunted. So he's being haunted by his uncle's ghost. And these haunting sequences are the part of the movie that's a horror movie. Yes. 
when he comes back from the sanitarium, we get visions of Jesus, an actual oh, dude playing Jesus, which was yeah. strange so for he's, this movie time period. He's, he, yeah, so the nephew's like regretful about his moita. <laughs> yeah, and he comes into the room, and instead of the ghost appearing to him, just straight up Jesus like appears as a spirit as like an actor on the crucifix on the crucifix as like an actor playing Jesus with the double exposure and like telling him like you know whatever and also there's Moses with the 10 commandments saying thou shalt not kill Moses appears to him too and like all these biblical things all around him that are like hey man this was wrong he messed up right and then he feels bad but like i think the idea is that like he feels better after seeing Jesus, like yeah. In a, it's supposed in a, to be that, like, oh, he accepts Jesus or something. I I don't know. He's been forgiven for his sins because he knows he did a bad. And Jesus died for your sins, so then it's all better. I don't know. I neither of us are religious enough to understand yes, things like this. But definitely, there's a a, a hard right turn into <laughs> Sunday Schoolville. Yes. In the middle of this movie. So after he's made right with the Son of God, it doesn't matter because the laws of man still apply. Yeah. So the detective shows up, starts interrogating him, and this is probably the most Edgar Allan Poe scene in the movie, and the most, like, I'd say probably the best scene in the movie. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so it's, the detective is questioning him, and this is, like, a really great instance of the cross-cutting and close-ups. So it cuts from the detective's face, uh, just kind of like being stern and questioning, to the nephew being like really freaked out, and then to the detective's pencil tapping on the table, and the nephew's like, the stop, and so you see a hand come in and, and stop the pencil tapping, but then you see the foot tapping, you see the clock ticking, and it's just this continual cross-cutting to these different things, and I think that's another great way Probably the best way to indicate that, like, beating heart, telltale heart thing. Yeah, he's he's showing you visually, you know, the tapping of the pencil. We see it's getting on the nephew's nerves. We're cutting between their faces, between close-ups of all these things, and we're doing it in a rhythmic beat so that we get the suggestion of sound visually without actually hearing anything. It's a really effective sequence that highlights... You know, all of the nephew's psychological anxieties really puts us in his headspace. It's the most effective bit in the movie because it's the closest we get to Poe. Uh, so, of course, D.W. Griffith overdoes it and drags it on too long. And soon, in addition to all the realistic psychological anxieties, the nephew's also seeing, like, he, like, looks in a door and sees, like, demons <laughs> from hell who start torturing him. So we're back into, like, the overdone biblical stuff again. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's he's seeing, like, he's literally seeing visions of, like, skeletons and demons and monsters torturing him in hell. That pushes him to confess to the detective. And he runs off to the safe house that we see that he prepared earlier in the film at some point. And there's a shootout between him and the cops. Yeah, and... then we just, we go from this psychological horror-ish story in the middle. Like, we were full-on romance mel melodrama act one. Act two, we're a psychological horror story. Act three, we're just a big cops and robbers <laughs> shootout movie where he's in his safe house with the little slats 
cut out in the wall so he can shoot out at the cops with his rifle. The cops are there shooting at him. The Italian and a bunch of vaguely ethnic, multiracial people, gang, show up to fight the cops too and then promptly decide not to bother. Yeah, uh, oh, and the the sweetheart is running over to uh, try to stop the whole thing because she truly right. really loves him. Nephew runs out of bullets, goes, oh, I know how to get out of this. I'll hang myself. And just as um, the cops break in and stop him from hanging himself, the girl went, runs up to the window, sees that he's hung himself and thinks that he's dead, and so she jumps off the cliff. Oh, yeah. She runs over to a cliff and just straight up jumps off it. And just, like, to tell you that, you know, D.W. Griffith does not believe in subtlety. Like, we don't just see her jump off the cliff. A dude runs up to the cliff, looks down. We then see an insert shot of her dead body on the rocks. Then, like, he comes down the cliff (laughs) to, like, poke at her body to make sure she's dead. Like, we know she's dead. And then... Right, right when you're like, oh, this is the darkest timeline. It was all a dream. (sighs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, nephew wakes up from the chair, and he's like, oh, what? What's going on? And then uh, the uncle walks into frame and sits down. He's just like, no, 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 I'm just doing business. And nephew's like, What? Runs up to him and is, like, poking him, and it's a little comical, and then proceeds to tell him how he jumped, he murdered him. Yeah, he's like, oh, man, I had a dream where I killed you. And, and uncle's fine with that? Yeah, he's just like, oh, man, well, I'm glad you didn't. Like, that would have been terrible. By the way, like, you can totally marry that chick. I had a change of heart about romance. Yeah, and uh, at the same time, we see Sweetheart wake up from the last time we saw her before craziness ensued. Uh, and she's like, you know what, uncle or no uncle, I'm going to marry dude. And uh, she runs over just in time for dude to wake up from his dream, and it's all almost a happy ending. Right, like if the movie had straight up finished there, I would not, I would still not like it, but <laughs> I would not have as virulent a reaction to it. Like, that's the happy ending. Movie should just be done. But like, there's no, there's like a solid ten minutes left. And so I have, I have a theory about this movie, Ben. Oh, no. I have such a good theory. Okay. You don't even know, but we need to finish explaining this last 10 minutes, otherwise the theory won't make sense. Okay. So the last little bit is uh, Nephew and Sweetheart sitting on, like, this grassy knoll, and the title card says, he tells her about his latest novel, or something like that, and then it fades into, like, this 10-minute sequence of Pan playing his flute, Little, like, gnome children, cherub children, coming out and dancing around. And then, like, more weird Greek fantasy things. There's, like, animals. There's, like, close-ups of, like, jaguars and lynxes. And I think there was, like, some bunnies. Yeah. And it's just, like, an idyllic pan nature scene. You know, out of, like, 1890s Britain. But, (laughs) like... You know, if you thought that Pan being in this movie and this movie having, like, a reputation as a horror movie meant we were going to get, like, some sweet, like, great god Pan, Arthur Meacham kind of stuff, like, no. This is just idyllic, tra-la-la in the forest, Pan nonsense for, like, straight up ten minutes as if Griffith just had, like, this whole other scene lying around from something else and he was just like, oh shit, I gotta use this and (laughs) chucked it onto the end of this movie. And then, yeah, and then it fades back into Nephew and 
lady chilling out, and then it fades out as if it's the end. Well, it is the end at that point. Yes. Yes. But it's like, yeah, completely gratuitous. Where where do we begin, Sarah? All right. So you started this whole thing off with saying that you did not think it was a horror movie. Right. Okay. I I don't know how I feel about it if it's a horror movie, but I got some things. Oh, no. Okay, yeah. All right. So... Let's do it. I think there's definitely feelings of the grotesque because of these close-ups of the friggin' spider. Multiple shots of the spider eating insects. Oh, yeah, like, when, when Buddy's like, oh, I'll murder people because spiders eat things. Like, we get, like, full-on, like, you're just missing David Attenborough's voice. But, like, otherwise it's straight-up <laughs> documentary spider chow time. And, like, especially with the ants attacking the wasp, it felt very... The phrase body horror came into my mind, even mm. though it's not exactly body horror, but it was just, like, gross and grotesque. Revulsion. Revulsion. Um, and that's not just because I have arachnophobia. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, like, definitely the start of, cool, this is a horror movie for me. But, okay, we would both agree that it's a psychological horror or thriller movie. For, like, a third of it. Like, for the middle third. But you would agree. For the middle third, yes. Okay. Here are my thoughts. Okay. Um, Do they explain why <laughs> it explains, Pan... It explains Pan. Does it explain why Pan and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, are in the same movie? Because I feel like <laughs> one of the two of them would have been upset if they had known the other guy was in the movie. I, I don't know if it explains Jesus. Okay. Uh, but, Okay. In the lead-up to watching this, um, and I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about Poe, so I looked up the Annabelle poem, I looked up a bit about Telltale Heart, timing of all these things, and on Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> um, it mentions how Poe's life was always characterized by the loss of the women in his life. Sure. Um, and a lot of that led to um, discussion of who exactly is the woman in the Annabelle poem for Poe. Is mm. it his wife who died two years earlier? Is it, like, some other people? Is it his mom? Like, there's things like that. This movie opens with the nephew becoming an orphan. Like, we see the mom die, loss right. of mother's life. Sure, yeah. And then when we see that he's an adult, he's reading, like, explicitly reading Telltale Heart. Yeah, he's, he's reading Telltale Heart. This is before he murders anybody in his dream. And he, the movie also quotes Annabelle Lee kind of as a title card all throughout. Mm. And, I was, and, like, he calls his sweetheart Annabelle. And it says that it's not her name, it's just what he calls her. Right, because women don't have real names. <laughs> they only have whatever you've decided to dub them. Uh, just ask William Moulton Marston. Ugh, I'll never get over that. Anyways, sidetracking me. So clearly, nephew is a real big Poe fanboy. So, can I jump in here with one quick thought? Yeah. When I saw him, like, that the movie was going with the, like, he commits murder because he reads Edgar Allan Poe, like, chain of things, <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, so if this movie was, like, made today, this would have been the scene where he's playing Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> and then he goes and murders everybody. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, but he's a big, he's a big Poe fanboy. Mm-hmm. So part of him being a fanboy, you kind of talked about it with the Grand Theft Auto thing, is like this method of murder is almost explicitly right from Poe. Clearly, 
dude wants to be a writer or something, like clearly he's not really wanting to be an accountant or whatever his uncle does. Um, and then at the end, when he's like telling his love interest about his most recent novel, it made me think, oh, so he did want to be a novelist this whole time. And then when it goes into this weird pan fantasy, the only reason I can think that we would have such an extended time with it is to... The only reason why we would have this pan imagery and sequence is to show that he's not slash no longer deranged and just thinking about murder. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously was what happens if you just read Poe. But also that, like... It's almost like a redemption tale for Poe, because of this, like, Christian redemption, Catholicism almost, like, imagery in this middle part. So that's how I would explain Jesus. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I want to, like, I know that pan imagery was really common around the turn of the century. Pan had been associated by the Romantics with unspoiled nature and you know unbridled everything <laughs> and that sort of stuff and i know that even by this point horror authors had started using pan imagery to suggest kind of like you know the unpredictable and capricious nature of nature um and stuff like that versus man's reason and things like that you know i mean the popularity of pan imagery around the turn of the century is why you get Peter Pan around the turn of the century, right? So I, I'm trying to, like, classify this pan epilogue in that context, I guess. And, I mean, I, I see what you mean. I think I think you're right in that probably its main function is just to show that his mind is now focused on nice and peaceful things. Hmm. But it still goes on too long. Well, yeah, it's D.W. Griffith. I have a note that I wrote down that D.W. Griffith is like 1914 Peter Jackson in that he never knows when to quit. <laughs> like, scenes just go on far longer than they should with more added nonsense in them. Thinking about that, that theory I had, mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to think how we began this whole discussion and before we saw the movie talking about how horror movies would latch onto notable literary quote-unquote adaptations in order to get away with more things. Right. But with this, if, if the nephew is supposed to be a little bit of a Poe figure or something, especially with the dream sequence, all of that horror is still placed completely on Poe and his work, mm -hmm. because clearly, like, the nephew was only thinking about this stuff because he was reading Poe. Right, it's all the book's fault. You can't blame us, kind of. Yeah, and then by the end of the film, with the nephew completely re rejecting that kind of literature and going towards this more calm, idyllic fantasy literature in his own writings, it's like he completely turns away from Poe. Right. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too. Mm. It's we want to do a movie with moiter and ghosts and hauntings and demons and people freaking out and killing each other and killing themselves, you know, but how do we get away with that? Well, let's have a dude, you know, read some Edgar Allan Poe, fall asleep, have a dream, 
wake up and then be like, oh man, that, that horror stuff, man, that's, that's some bad stuff. Don't, don't go around with that. You know, it's like if you were trying to make, you know, like a, a an orgy porn film and you just bookended it with scenes at the beginning and end of like telling people that, you know, monogamous man and wife relationships are, are the best, you know, but there was like five minutes of that on either side of like an hour and a half of orgy porn. Like that's, <laughs> that's sort of how this movie comes. It's a little disingenuous, I guess, but I think I'll buy, I'll buy your theory. I think the thing that's really disarming about this movie from a position 103 years later is you'd never see a movie with such a mix of genres today. Mm. Like, this movie goes everywhere. This movie's romantic melodrama, and it's comedy, comedy, and it's a police detective story, and it's got a gunfight, and it's got ghosts, and it's got Jesus, (laughs) and it's got demons, and it's got Pan. It's got everything. And I think it shows the kind of infancy of genre conventions over film form at this time. Like, no one's sitting down and saying, like, oh, well, you can't put these five things in a movie together because that'll confuse your target demo. Like, nobody's talking like that in 1914. (laughs) It's just D.W. Griffith saying, like, hey, I want to put all this stuff in this movie. And a bunch of people being like, well, I guess. I mean, your other movies made money, so sure. (laughs) You know? What do you think about the difference between... D.W. Griffith almost, like, apologizing for the horror in his film versus The Student of Prague, where it was just gradually bringing the audience into it and just, like, went for it by the end. Oh, I, I would take Student of Prague any day. Like, what, what do you think about, like, the difference of how they've embraced it? I think that, in any case, whether then or now, your film is always stronger for embracing your genre rather than apologizing for it you know and you see this a lot in genre films even today you know there's sort of two kinds of superhero movies right there's one where the lead character puts on a mask and a cape and goes out and fights bad guys and there's the other where he puts on a mask and he goes but it's so stupid that i wear a mask right and he puts on a cape and goes but the cape's pretty dumb right and then like punches a bad guy and goes what are you supposed to be some kind of villain and and you see that kind of thing where it's like apologizing for the genre that you're making while you're doing it. Mm. And I don't think it ever comes off well. I think in you know, in the case of this movie it leaves it unfocused and kind of muddled and all over the place. And too long. And too long. But I think in you know, in a lot of other cases, um it's just something that means that your film doesn't have any integrity, right? Because you are trying to have your cake and eat it too. You're trying to have things both ways. You want the thrills and the spooks and the scares and the psychological incisiveness of the horror genre. But, you know, you don't want to get anyone upset. You know, and that was the thing about American films of this vintage is that they were desperate not to upset anybody so you've got all this stuff where it's like oh don't worry like jesus and it was all a dream anyways you know and i mean it's 1914 but it was all a dream was already a played out tropey ending (laughs) by 1914 like 
it was all a dream is the ending to one of Melia's first films from 1898. It's the ending to Alice in Wonderland from the 1880s. It's, it was already an ending that was very common in fiction. I mean, it goes back to Cervantes in like the 1600s. It's, it was already a bad ending and it's a bad ending here too. Even if it's the only ending that gives everyone their happy ending, but that's sort of why I feel like this isn't a horror movie. It's like if, if it hadn't have had the, it's all a dream ending and it had ended with everyone dying. That's how horror movies do morality tales. You know, don't do this thing. See what awful stuff happens to the people who do this thing. This movie isn't a horror movie because everybody gets to wake up from the dream and go, oh, and then get married and laugh and live happily ever after reading about Pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about all the notes I had. Do you, do you have any more? Um, I do just want to say that the acting done by the guy who played the nephew, Henry B. Walthall, mm-hmm. he was great. <laughs> I really enjoyed his uh, his acting. He was pretty good, especially when he's going crazy in the middle of the movie yeah. during the like interrogation scene. That was really well done. It it does bear saying that he was thirty six. Mm-hmm. The actor playing his uncle was forty six, <laughs> and Blanche Sweet, who was playing his love interest, was eighteen. She's the right age. Right, exactly. No one else's. That's right, yeah. The, the yeah. uncle's supposed, like, the uncle looks like he's 60, and the nephew's supposed to be, like, 20-something as well. Yeah, I feel like the nephew shouldn't be older than 20. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the acting, you're right. Like, overall, like, it's all in the very Griffith melodramatic style, but, I mean, you know, it's still a well-made movie. It's just too much. Yeah. Do we want to get into ranking The Avenging Conscience? Yeah. What are we feeling about The Avenging Conscience in terms of other stuff on the list? I mean, I guess right away, we've only got one other feature film to compare it to, which is Student of Prague. We've also got only one other Griffith film to compare it to, which is Sealed Room. And as it stands, Student of Prague is number one on our list, and Sealed Room is number two. Really? Yes. I forgot Sealed Room was so high. Uh, I would, I would put this below Sealed Room. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, purely, as I've been saying this whole time, on the basis that it is not a horror film. Sealed Room, you know, makes you sit there and watch people die in real time. And it's cheesy, but, like, that's what that movie's about. This movie's about a bunch of nonsense. Poe will make you commit murder. That's what it's about. Right, and, and Jesus... And you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Yes, and then write books about the great god Pan. <laughs> So, okay, so if it's going below Sealed Room, because we're, we're, we're both in agreement on that. Yes. Okay, next on the list is Frankenstein. Below. Okay, next on the list is 1912 Jekyll and Hyde, which was the 10-minute one. Versus the one with uh, King... King Baggett, Jekyll and Hyde is the next one down. 1913 Jekyll and Hyde. Ooh, would I put it above... This King is Baggett. this is a I would say this is above King Baggett, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, why I is mean, that? Okay, because the acting was actually good. Yes, because this was like yes, this was a well made movie. Like the King Baggett, Jekyll and Hyde, I was able to make a strong argument about why it's a horror movie when 
I don't think this is. I think this is a morality tale. On the other hand, this is a better movie. Just overall. We are ranking by horror movie. Oh, sure. Absolutely. But, like, at a certain point, a movie's just bad versus a movie is not as bad. Also, the few scary moments in Avenging Conscience were spookier than King Baggett goleming around the frame yeah. going booga booga at people. <laughs> the the spider eating the fly sequence was scarier than the entire you, thing of King Baggett. You jumped out of your chair when that ghost came out of that fireplace. That's because it looked like the hand is straight out. It was real good. It I was well it was done. Like it was like actually the hand coming out. The thing that made that frame great is that he didn't cut to close up. That he kept it in a wide shot, kept the two characters who were focused on talking, and just had the ghost come out from like frame left out of nowhere. It was very effective. Um, so okay. So if it's better than King Baggett, is it better than the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde, the 10-minute one? Hmm. So they were both psychological in nature. Yes. Because it ended with um, Jekyll committing suicide. Yes. And, but he was Hyde at the time as well, so it was like, who's really in control? And there was psychological stuff going on there that you pointed out. Okay, so just by saying that, I think... Jekyll and Hyde wins. Yeah. Because it had the balls to not be a dream at the end of the damn movie. <laughs> yes. Okay. So if that's the case, then The Avenging Conscience by D.W. Griffith is entering the list at number four. Uh, below 1912's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but above 1913 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Cool. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week we've got a fun treat. It is a feature-length film, but it is our first horror anthology film. Okay. So it is Unheimlich Geschichten, or Eerie Stories. Uh, this is a German film from 1919, directed by Robert Oswald, and starring Conrad Veidt. Oh my god. A very early Conrad Veidt role. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Oh, man. Great. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you've liked what you've heard, you can subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore screen scene. Um, you can also find the list to see where everything else is listed and uh, where you can submit appeals on our Tumblr page, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, and if you really, really want to appeal the ranking of The Avenging Conscience, feel free to submit either through our Ask Box on Tumblr or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. All right, see you next week, everybody, as we dive once again into German Expressionism. I'm so excited. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.